So I want to invite us to spend some time this morning reflecting on the life and legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer. She feels like a perfect bridge as we move from Black History Month into Women's History Month. And if this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, this sermon uh, was inspired by two recent um, biographies of her. Uh, The first is from our own Beacon Press, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. It's by Keisha Blaine, a history professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'd recommend starting with Blaine's book, and I'll give a brief shout out to uh, Beacon Press, uh, which is owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association. They just have, year after year, this incredible track record of, of publishing this strong lineup of books. Uh, a second book is always also good. It's by Oxford University Press, Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer by Katie Larson, a women's studies professor at Brandeis University. Uh, There's been a renewed interest in Fannie Lou Hamer because her work for voting rights remains incredibly relevant, tragically, in wake of these ongoing attempts to undermine our democracy today. And one of the reasons that Fannie Lou Hamer is so inspiring is that she was born into a family with very little resources. You know, sometimes people change the world, but they were like born on third base and celebrate that they hit a triple. Uh, So, you know, she was born in this family with very little resources. She had the chance to go to school for only about four months every year, and she stopped going altogether at age 12. But she more than made up with that with her fierce passion for social justice. She was born in Mississippi in 1917 as the youngest of 20 children. Her grandparents had been enslaved, and she, her parents, and her siblings were all sharecroppers, meaning that they uh, were allowed to farm land owned by someone else in exchange for a share of the crops. Uh, Sharecropping, at least as it was practiced at that time in the South, was an incredibly exploitative system that was intentionally patterned on enslavement. It's like we can't legally enslave people anymore, so what's the next closest thing that we can do? In Hamer's words, life was very hard, and we hardly ever had enough to eat. We had to work real hard. I started working when I was six years old. Despite how hard her family worked, it was all but impossible to make ends meet. She said so many times for dinner, we would have greens with no seasoning and flour gravy. My mother would mix flour with just a little grease and try to make some gravy out of it. Sharecropping was set up to be the only option for many black families and was biased in favor of enriching the white landowner and keeping the black families in debt. Sharecropping was designed to keep white supremacy entrenched. As the saying goes, this system isn't broken. It was designed and built this way. Sharecropping dominated Fannie Lou Hamer's life for her first 45 years on this earth from her birth in 1917 to one fateful evening in 1962. Now, before I tell you about that night, I don't want to move too quickly over the first four and a half decades of her life. There's a whole lot to say, but I'm going to have to limit myself to two representative stories that help give you a sense of how she had kind of eyes to see and ears to hear when that fateful evening came that call to activism. The first story is from when Hamer was quite young, and one day her mother asked, I mean, one day she asked her mother, 
why am I not white? She said, white people have clothes, they have food to eat, we work all the time, and we don't have anything. Why, am, why wasn't I born white? And she never forgot how clear her mother was in responding that black is beautiful and not a shade less than beautiful. She said, my mother told me she wanted to respect myself as a black child and that as I grew older, she wanted me to respect myself as a black woman. And although they had very little money, her mother saved up enough to buy her a black doll. And she said, I was the only person I knew who had a black doll. The second story happened when Hamer was just a little bit older and she saw a white supervisor raise his arm to strike one of her brothers. Her mother grabbed that supervisor's arm and made it clear that no one but her had permission to discipline her children. Now, at that time, that act could have cost her mother her life, but her mother was also known to carry a 9mm pistol as she worked (laughs) the sharecropping fields. Both these stories reflect what our UU first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That's what her mother was trying to instill in her. You have inherent worth and dignity, and every person you meet has inherent worth and dignity. That those in similar experiences helped lay the groundwork for Hamer to be ready to respond to this unexpected call that ended up profoundly shaping the final decade and a half of her life until her death from cancer in 1977 at the too young in age of 59. So let's go then to that fateful day. What is it that happened on Monday, August 27th, 1962? Uh, A 44-year-old Fannie Hamer attended her first meeting of of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You may have heard it abbreviated as SNCC. At that meeting, she learned for the first time that the United States Constitution prohibits the federal government and each state from denying a citizen's right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. She said, they were talking about how we could vote out people that we didn't want in office, and that sounded interesting enough to me that I decided to try it. In theory, Black citizens of this country have been guaranteed the right to vote since 1870 when the 15th Amendment was passed. One of th- it was the third and final of three major Reconstruction Amendments that were passed after the Civil War. But in practice, many unjust hurdles were set up to prevent black Americans from voting. To use Hamer's home state as an example, in the 1960s, so that's almost a century after 1870, of Mississippi's 450,000 black residents were registered to vote. 95% had been stopped from voting by these unjust voting laws. This race gap in registered voters is why the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was so consequential and important and why it is so tragic that the United States Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. That ruling paved the way for many new racist voting... I mean, basically, immediately after that happened, racist voting right restrictions got that are still affecting our democracy to this day. You'll see at the end of this hall with our current women's history exhibit, um, RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the notorious RBG, you know, she said in her dissent to that voting, gutting of the Voting Rights Act, she said, you're saying that since it's not raining right now, that like being racist right now, we should just throw our umbrella away for all time. And she was exactly right. As soon as we threw that umbrella away, 
it's raining and it's continued to rain. But now I'm getting ahead of myself, and I want to keep, but I want to keep reminding us why Hamer's example remains such an important touchstone to our own work for voting rights. One of Hamer's mottos was that hands that pick cotton now pick public officials. She also used to say that if we'd been treated right all these years, they wouldn't be so scared of us getting the ballot. Let me hasten to be clear that Hamer was not threatening revenge. Instead, her motivation was deeply connected to what we explored a few weeks ago of what Dr. King called interdependence, what Thich Nhat Hanh called interbeing, what our UU seventh principle that our youth are going to talk to us about next week called the interdependent web of all existence. They were all part of this. Hamer urged us to see that racism is a sickness on our society. It most directly impacts African Americans, but it is so toxic for everyone because it creates a broken society that has terrible ramifications that affect everyone. Hamer's goal was collective liberation so that we all get free. She said, the changes we ha have to have in this country are going to be for the liberation of all people because nobody is truly free until everybody is free. She would add, I'm actually not fighting for a black Mississippi. I'm fighting for a people's Mississippi. I'm not fighting to seat an all-black government in the state of Mississippi, but I want you to know something, white people. It's not going to be an all-white government either. Amen? <laughs> Having briefly explored the larger context, let's pick back up with that major turning point in Fannie Lou Hamer's life when she attended her first SNCC meeting on Monday, August 27, 1962. A mere five days later, she started putting her words into action. On Friday, August 31st, 1962, she boarded a bus to register to vote. And at the courthouse, her group was met by what she described as more policemen with guns than I have ever seen in one place in my life. Inside the courthouse, they were given discriminatory literacy tests designed to keep black citizens disenfranchised. Hamer said the registrar brought out a big book, opened it, bam and pointed to the 16th section of the Constitution of the state of Mississippi and asked her to explain de facto laws. She said, I know as much about de facto law as a horse knows about New Year's. <laughs> Quite naturally, she said, I flunked the test. On the way home, their group was pulled over by one of those policemen from the courthouse and fined what is the equivalent in today's dollars of $850 for driving a bus that was, quote, too yellow a just fake flagrantly trumped up charge. The more consequential impact came when she returned home and she was kicked off the plantation where she and her husband were sharecroppers. I want you to hear Hamer tell that story in her own words, but first let me set the stage. Hamer may have had little form formal education, but she had a lot of charisma and her leadership potential was quickly recognized. In August 1964, that's two years uh, after she attended her first SNCC meeting, she found herself speaking at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. She was representing the Freedom Democratic Party, which was lobbying to have the first black delegates from Mississippi to the DNC. At that time, Mississippi's Democratic Party allowed only white delegates, even though African Americans made up 40%, 40%, 40% of Mississippi's population. 
In the wake of President Kennedy's assassination the previous November, keep in mind that Lyndon Johnson was vying for the, the 1964 presidential nomination. Johnson was so scared that Hamer's speech was going to cost him the support of Southern segregationists that he called a presidential press conference during Hamer's testimony at the DNC and delivered what was widely described as an unmemorable three-minute statement. Now, Johnson did succeed in blocking Hamer from being viewed live because the presidential networks all went to cover Johnson. But here's the thing. It turns out television, uh, television stations have more than one camera. Uh, <laughs> They recorded her speech, and excerpts, including the standing ovation that she received, were featured prominently on news programs that evening. I wonder if any of you remember this. If you do, I'd be interested to hear. The whole nation watched as a dirt poor Mississippi sharecropper who had to borrow a dress because she didn't have anything nice enough to wear. As this dirt poor Mississippi sharecropper with a sixth grade education shamed our nation into acknowledging how deeply and profoundly broken our democracy was and in many ways is. I want you to hear the final minute or so of her speech. The full eight minutes is very much watching. If you Google Fannie Lou Hamer's 1964 um, DNC speech, it'll, it'll pop right up. Uh, uh, she begins by telling the story of what happened when she returned home from registering to vote, uh, a right that should have been hers according to the Constitution since 1870. Let's see if we can watch this together. After they told me my husband came, and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, that if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we're not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. So even just that minute or so gives you a sense that she was such a force. She is and was, she was and is a legend. The next year in 1965, when voting rights legislation was making its way through Congress, she wanted to be present in person. 
She was stopped at the door by Adam Clayton Powell. They had, uh, he'd tried to get in her way before. He was one of the, the people that tried to uh, block the, the Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, he was the uh, first African American to be elected to Congress from New York, as well as the first from any state uh, in the Northeast. You know, what, what you get sometimes is people that have a little bit of power try to stop the other people coming back up. It's, it's a dynamic that happens. Uh, he told her and the two black women accompanying her, I do not think you should go. You go on the floor of Congress and you'll become the first black woman to ever walk on the floor of Congress. This is in 1965, right? And she said, Hamer said to him, well, get out your pen and start writing because we're going. That day, Fannie Lou Hamer and two other civil rights activists along with her, Victoria Jackson Gray and, and Annie Devine, became the first black women to be seated on the floor of the United States House Representatives. There's so much more to say about the life and legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer, but for now, let me move to my conclusion with two additional encouragements that I, th I think she would give for us today if she were still with us. The first encouragement is if you feel called to make this world a better place, do not let anything about your background hold you back. She showed us that anyone with enough care and commitment can make a difference. These are her words. She would say, don't worry about your qualifications. If they learned it, you can learn it too. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD or no D. It doesn't matter if you went to Morehouse or no house. We're all in this bag together. The second encouragement is to keep on moving forward because justice has already been denied for far too long. In her words, for 300 years, we've given them time, and I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. Those words, as you saw, that were etched on her tombstone. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Today, as we work for voting rights and to expand access to the democratic process, as Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others did before us, some of you remember that when Kamala Harris uh, made her acceptance speech of the nomination to be our first black as well as first Indian American vice president, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was one of six black women that she name-checked, you know, that were, were named in her speech. Uh, as we continue this work today, we know that this work is hard, but as she showed us how to do, we just need to keep on moving forward until we make election day a national holiday. You know, I've got one suggestion. I don't really care about President's Day. How about we let that go and make election day a national holiday? How about we abolish the filibuster? And how about statehood for DC and Puerto Rico? I mean. Isn't no taxation without representation? I know it's on the license plate. It's basic to America, right? And it is a shame that it's not the case. There's so much more we need to do. So much more is needed to build the world we dream about. And it will be hard to achieve. But Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others, they remind us we have done hard things and we can do them and must do them again. So no matter who you are, or where you come from. You are needed in the struggle for justice, to turn our dreams into deeds, to build the world we dream about, a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, not just for an elite few, but truly for all. Your voice matters. Everybody's personal dignity 
matters, and I'm grateful to be on this journey toward justice with all of you. So as we continue to discern, how do you individually, how do we collectively feel called to act in the days and weeks and years ahead, individually and collectively within our spheres of influence? Let's rise, embody your spirit. In your gray hymnal, turn to 118. This is one of Fannie Lou Hamer's favorite songs, one she would often lead people in singing publicly. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 